Grace and Truth Choir. Yeah. Uh, do you ever see a lot of angry people walking around with one of these in their hands? <coughs> if you're, um, if you can see it on camera, it's a golf ball. Uh, actually, Roger gave me this. It's got Corbin University logo on it. Um, but uh, yeah, do you ever a lot of relaxed, happy golfers? <laughs> Like, this little thing has caused so much anguish in our world. It is amazing. Uh, I used to, I was in a league many years ago. Um, and now, so what I, I want to talk about people who are good at it. Not, not the rest of us. Uh, Roger's pretty good in the back there. But for the rest of us, we're all hacks, right? But yet, even the people who are good at it, and I've played with some who are quite good. They, um... They're angry people if it don't go right. Uh, and so th- this becomes a part of actually life in Christianity that you can love doctrine, love the Lord, love His Word, and still be an unhappy person because you don't have any joy in your heart over what you're doing. Um, everybody else is getting it wrong. Why don't they get with it? What's wrong with people? And stuff like that. I used to, I, I golfed in a league. I started to say this was years, some years ago. Back east, just before I get out here. And for most of us in this league, this was an excuse to drink. Um, but there was one guy I'll never forget who uh, was, he was the best in the league. And everybody hated golfing with him. Because he took it so seriously. Uh, we did not. But anyway, um, yeah. Doing the right thing for the right reasons and being super stressed out and worried and anxious and frayed at the nerves and bossy and controlling and what in the world is wrong with everybody else. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity about the fact that God wants all our heart, not just part of it. And he writes about how all of us figure out eventually as we get older that there's things we ought to do and things we ought not to do and that we better get busy doing the things. Finally, we throw in the towel and say we better get busy doing the things we ought to do and stop doing the things we ought not to do. And then he talks about, in the end, I'm quoting him now, you will either give up trying to be good or else become one of those people who, as they say, live for others, but always in a discontented, grumbling way, always wondering why the others do not notice it more, and always making a martyr of yourself. And once you've become that, you will be a far greater pest to anyone who has to live with you than you would have been if you had remained, frankly, selfish. The Christian way is different. Harder and easier. The harder, you have to give everything to him. The easier, once you do that, you're all set. Before we uh, pray, I want to remind still, uh, I keep getting messages from Fazl, John, in Pakistan. Uh, That's Grace Bible Church, Pakistan over there. Uh, The persecution on Christians continue uh, pretty uh, harshly. So I just remind to pray for them 
Fazel and Carrie are their names, and of course others throughout the world. Uh, to, re- to remember that, we, we here in America deal with different kinds of uh, distractions to the gospel that they do. We're going to actually touch on that a bit today. Uh, another thing, uh, I've got to do uh, an assignment for a class, a teaching assignment, and one of the ideas I had was to do something different. And what I was thinking of doing was having a Bible study that I'll be filming that will involve a group. So uh, we're going to do, a bi- if I have participants, if not, I'll just do it myself. That um, Psalm 19 is going to be the subject. And if uh, you want to be a part of this, either it's going to be it's coming up quick, so it's either next week or the week after, that we'll establish a time that we'll have to work out, and that maybe two, three, four, all of us, would be great, you know, but a number of people, if you want to participate, we'd sit around a table and uh, with a little preliminary, not much, uh, a preliminary preparation on Psalm 19, we would have a, I'm thinking, 15, 20-minute Bible study together on Psalm 19, and it's something I've always wanted to try, but <clears throat> um, yeah, this is for a class, so uh, if you wanted to be a part of it, just See me after class, and maybe if we have enough of you, we can arrange a time and and uh, just something fun to do. And so, let me know. Okay? All right. So, let's open up in prayer. Put my golf ball away. <laughs> I'll probably lose it like all the others. Uh, let's open up in prayer and thank God for the opportunity we have to be together and to hear his word and to be comforted, which is our topic today, um, by truth and by uh, the love of our Lord. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has set us free and the experience of freedom that each of us can live every single day, which comes by your word. Your word teaches us of who you are and what you've done. And though at times, Father, we feel distant from you, and we feel that perhaps we're not getting it all right and we're messing everything up, that you, Father, remind us in your word that you have all things in your hand, including us. And so, Father, thank you for your truth, for our Lord, who has saved us, and for your spirit within us, who gives us the ability to comprehend and understand your truth. And uh, through that truth, Father, we praise you and thank you, and we will do so as we sing and also as we learn your word. We thank you so much. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, All rise, please. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches. 
Uh, let's Second uh, Thessalonians two. We're moved now to verse sixteen. Slowly but surely. <clears throat> so as we talked about in the open, um, there are Christians that we can get into the the rut of this. I found myself in it. Uh, actually, this <laughs> is very appropriate. Uh, just in the last few days. Um, I hurt my back, uh, and it, it's it's not healing as quick as I would like. Uh, my doctor gave me uh, steroids, and so I've been taking the roids, well, prednisone. And uh, so, you know, I'm I'm hyped up. You don't sleep real well on steroids, and and you get do get kind of anxious. And then I've got uh, this uh, six-year-old who's just been getting under my skin lately. And yesterday, I just kind of lost it. You'll see it. Uh, as I was I was at my kitchen table working on today's lesson while she was sitting across from me yesterday morning, and uh, I ended up writing the word brat into <laughs> my message. You'll hear it come. It's coming. Uh, <clears throat> and and this you know appropriately what I'm what I'm looking at here is as Paul is emphasizing is the word comfort. He uses it twice here in this passage. Um, and so we're talking here about Christians who love the Lord and his word, but find themselves not enjoying life, not enjoying the Christian life. And why? Well, there's people around them who are drawing life out of them. There are temptations within and maybe giving into temptation where there's sin within, temptation from the flesh that have drawing life out of them. And so because of our failures personally and because of the failures of others that are, maybe they're not intentionally persecuting us like they were in Thessalonica, but their bad decisions are become this gravity of energy that draws life from us or from me. And so uh, Christians who love the Lord and love his word find themselves not enjoying the Christian life. Instead, their lives are more marked by stress, by worry, by anxiety, by depression, and a lack of joy and a lack of strength. And it seems hard to go on. God knows that we need comfort. And today we will see exactly where it comes from. This is the beauty of God's word. He doesn't say, I'm going to comfort you and good luck. He says, I'm going to comfort you and this is exactly how I'm going to do it. Then it's up to us to accept that. If we're going to say, well, I see what you say about comfort, Lord, but I'm going to seek it my own way. Well, good luck. Because you're going to need it. Comfort is not experienced in the Christian life by God fixing everything. That is certainly not it. Comfort is not experienced in the Christian life by God fixing him or her or it or you. (laughs) Well, yeah, not even that either. Comfort and strength, as we see, look at our passage here in 2 Thessalonians 2.16. These two lines, well, two verses, it's one sentence is the closing to the main body of the letter. So there's 2 Thessalonians has three chapters as the, the interpreters have split it up. When Paul writes this, there's no chapters or verses, you understand. 
But so this line is the end of the main body. And then you see in 3.1, if you look at 3.1, he says, finally, that's the end of the letter. So chapter 3 is the close. This line is a closing to the main body. Now, the main body of the letter, both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, are letters written by the apostle to people who he has ministered to, and he's writing these letters for encouragement. So that's their whole purpose, is to encourage Christians who are brand new believers, and he's encouraging them in the Christian life. Now, there's all kinds of other stuff going on with them, uh, and a great deal of that is the persecution that they're facing by their own people, by their neighbors. They're being persecuted for the gospel. But there's another issue. Not only are they being persecuted, but people are lying to them about doctrines that are untrue. And so they're being deceived. And so chapter 2, the main body of the second letter, the second letter is about encouragement, just like the first letter is, but in the second letter, we have a clarification of false doctrine, which was that they were in the day of the Lord, which they're not. Uh, so, then he says this, after he has encouraged them, warned them about false doctrine, told them to keep going and glorify the Lord, told them, just as we saw, that you're saved and sanctified, therefore you have the glory of the Lord. Look at the glory of the Lord and let it transform you. And then he says in verse 16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and a good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Now this little line is chock full. Like so many passages. <laughs> There's so much here, it's incredible. Um, the main message of the letter, again, is encouragement to not be deceived by false doctrines. And this is a wish. Uh, so it actually falls under a kind of a prayer, although he's not really setting it up as a prayer. But where he says in verse 17, Comfort and strengthen, those are both verbs that are rare in their mood. Their mood is optative. Now, optative, there's only 68 of them in the whole New Testament. These optative moods, and what they mean is a wish. So, an optative is a wish. Paul often uses them where he says, you know, it says in Romans 6, 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? And then he says, may it never be. That's an optative, meaning Paul is saying, I wish that that would never be true, that we're going to interpret grace in a false way. Here he wishes for the Thessalonians that they're comforted and that they're strengthened, but not for doing nothing, right? In every good work and word. And so, where is this strength and comfort coming from? Well, right at the head, we have the opening of may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God the Father who has, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and a good hope by grace. And don't skip that word eternal. Right? A comfort, this is for all time. Right? No matter what happens here. 
no matter who happens here, I have eternity with my Lord, don't I? The close of the body of the letter emphasizes comfort of the heart. And the picture I pick here is a tree in the desert for a reason. Uh, This is... um, you know, from last week, we looked at the tree of life uh, on, I think it was Thursday's message, where we saw the tree of life that was in the original garden. And then we find it in Proverbs chapter 8, that wisdom is a tree of life to those who partake of her. And then we find it at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 22, and it's in heaven. And we're eating of the tree of life. And this tree of life is actually the source of all things good and the source of God's wisdom. And we're going to need that. We need wisdom for this comfort. It's not just going to wash over us. That God, I'm super stressed out. Um, comfort me. He'll be, he'll be, yeah, I'll answer that prayer, but let me show you where comfort is. And it's not on your own terms. You've got to know where to look for it. <clears throat> the desert is where we live. In heaven, it's not going to be like this. Right? The tree of life is, grows on, in Revelation 22, it grows on both sides of the river that flows from the Lord's throne. People have depicted this as a tree branching out onto two sides of a river. Uh, you know, whatever. Whatever it looks like, I don't, I, at this point, I don't care. Uh, what I care about now is the fact that I'm going to be there and eating of it. And, but now... And I, and I love that, and that's comfort itself. But i got to deal with the desert now. And there's a lot of nasty people in the desert. And there's a lot of nastiness in me. <clears throat> so I can't judge them because I'm like them. Even if I have been set free from my sin, I'm still a nasty you-know-what. And I've still got a bunch of flaws and problems here that I've got to deal with. And I've got to overcome them. Paul states that he wishes that God who loves us and gives us eternal comfort and a good hope in grace would comfort our hearts. So comfort is mentioned twice. The Greek word is parakletos. It's where we get our word helper. You know, when Jesus said, I'm going to give you another helper, it's Holy Spirit. Same exact word, same Greek word, parakletos. It's a comforter. Parakletos, kletos means to call, and para means alongside. So it's someone that is called alongside to give you comfort. (coughs) So you can do all that is commanded, study and learn, pray for the Thessalonians, and like we will, uh, have to endure persecution. Thessalonians had a lot of that. We've seen that. You can do what's commanded, study and learn, pray and endure persecution, and all the while feel the burden of stress and the impending weakness. Because the other thing besides comfort he has here is strength. And we're going to see when we get to chapter 3, he's going to say have endurance, which is very closely related to strength, often called steadfastness. Uh, (coughs) Excuse me. We can do all that's commanded. And really be stressed out about it. I love how C.S. Lewis puts that. You're more of a pest than when you were when you were selfish. Because you think it all depends on you. So comfort is doing all that is commanded with strength 
and joy despite people and circumstances. And this is going to demand a particular exercise of skill in you. And uh, you're going to have to remember to do it. But it's very, it's particular. You have to remember to do something. And, uh, oh, God, fix this. Hey, you can pray that all day. God doesn't say don't pray that. But you can pray it, and he'll say, he can say no. Father, take this thorn out of my flesh. It's hurting my ministry. Nope. Father, you fix this in that person's life. Fix it in my life. They got cured. They got cured of cancer. It was a miracle. What about mine? Their financial problem got fixed by some miraculous gift. I'm over here languishing without any money. Fix mine. You hear that silence? (laughs) The Thessalonians, who are new converts, face a significant amount of trouble and persecution from their own people. And why did they face it? Because of their faith in the gospel. Their persecution was unique to them, was it not? You don't live in first century Thessalonica. Their trouble, though, is the same sort that will press itself around every one of us. Now, the letters of the New Testament are written for particular situations of particular people. And a lot of people, even in seminaries, theological departments and universities all over this world, are foregoing the fact that they have any application to us now because they were written to a certain people in a certain situation a long time ago. But in other words, they're saying, and this is, mar- this is marvelously funny to me, that God is not smart enough to have someone write a letter about something that wouldn't apply to all ages and all cultures. That's ridiculous. Now, in Thessalonica, Paul rolled into town with Silas and Timothy. They went to the synagogue, which is what they always did. They preached the gospel, and a lot of people believed. And there are a lot of people, Jewish people particularly there, though there weren't a large population of Jewish people there. Um, They persecuted them. And it says, as Luke writes Acts 17, it's only one little paragraph about this little history, but one thing that he mentions is that the people who didn't believe Paul became jealous of those who did. Now, is jealousy a common thing in the human race, or did it only happen in the first century in Greece? You know? Of course it is. So, though I may not be persecuted by my neighbor right now, there is a pressure or a trouble on me That is of the same sort, and it will press itself around me, always threatening to turn my life into a stressful, unhappy one. And I think in our day, people aren't persecuting the gospel that much anymore. In Pakistan, sure. In America, you know what the persecution against the gospel is now? They don't care. That's it. You see, when you spread your witness, if you were to spread your witness in Pakistan right now, they'd be threatening to throw you in prison and torture you. That's tough. If you spread your witness here in America now, you will, it will fall on a million deaf ears. And that's also tough. 
I mean, if you want people to believe the gospel, if you want a witness of the Lord, and the person who says no either ignores you or wants to kill you, they're still saying no. If your concern is their soul, you're hurt and pressured just as much. It's a different way, for sure. And it's a different situation. You know, but when I, when I think of people like in my own family who I love who don't care about it, neighbors that I've come to know and love who don't care about it, it's burdensome. So the first emphasis in this sentence is not a what, but it's a whom. And notice, I underlined the pronoun himself because it's there. The Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who, what, love you. Uh, Paul does not have to put this pronoun there. He puts the pronoun autos. He doesn't need it. He puts Jesus Christos Curiu. Aren't you impressed at how much Greek I've learned? And uh, in, and so that's there. That's fine, right? It's right there. The Lord Jesus Christ. That I that means nobody else, right? Can't mistake that. Jesus. There's a lot of Jesuses in the ancient world. Uh, I was watching the. Uh, interestingly enough, I decided to uh, try and forego my crankiness yesterday by watching an episode of The Chosen. It worked, by the way, because it got my eyes off me and on that actors playing Jesus. It was great, actually. Um, and when there was in the show, they were doing like this guy said, "Yeah, I saw Jesus preaching to Gentiles," and the Pharisee was like, "Which Jesus?" You know, and and they they it's perfect because there's a lot of Jesus is a very or Yeshua, Hebrew Yeshua, is a common name. But when you say Yeshua of Nazareth, or in our Bible. Yeshua Christu, <laughs> Kyriu of the Lord. I mean, could be no other person. So it's no other person, but then Paul writes in autos. And that means he's really writing this, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the first word in the sentence is himself. It's autos. And you see this in Greek. English has a hard time doing it, so you have to explain it. It's himself the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an emphasis on Him. All right, today we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. What is the purpose of that supper? Do this what? Exactly. Of me. And this is what's going to give you comfort. Now they love you. This is a depth of love that we can't possibly comprehend, but good Lord Almighty, don't stop trying to comprehend it just because you find it unfathomable, as Paul says. Uh, it's true. The, the love of God is often overdone. That's a bad word for it. It's sometimes so done in churches that holiness and judgment and righteousness are underemphasized. Right? So you can go to church and hear about that God loves you, but you never hear about the fact that you better be righteous and live properly and follow his commands. You know, so. uh, but 
still, it should be emphasized because you will continue to discover the depth of God's love for you. For you. You. Put your name there. You. Go to Romans 8. 8.35. Now, there are so many passages I could turn to, and I know you know this. Such a well-trained congregation. You know this because I mean, turn to passages where God loves you. Yeah, this is a lot. From Genesis to Revelation. This one's special. Right at the end of Romans 8. Romans 8 is a special chapter in the whole Bible. Super special. Romans 8.35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Hey, how about fix it? God, you know what would really give me comfort here? Is if I wasn't in a famine. Or that guy wasn't trying to kill me with a sword. Or the distress and persecution were gone. If they were gone, that would be awesome. God says, but wait a minute. Listen to me. Will tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, peril, or sword separate us from the love of Christ? Just as it is written, for your sake, Lord... We are being put to death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Not sleep to be slaughtered. Sheep to be slaughtered. Why is that for his sake? What is God doing with human history? What is the ultimate goal? What is the ultimate goal? Is it to save everybody? Well, Christ said, I came to save. Absolutely. That is a major, major part of it. But not everybody gets saved, do they? The ultimate goal of all that God is doing is to His glory. His glory. And when we get that straight, there will be a lot figured out. Especially in reference to this. Because an oh God fix it is oh God save me. Save is a word that means delivered. Save me. Save me from this peril, from this distress, or as Paul would say, from this thorn in the flesh. Save me. God says, um, the purpose of what I'm doing is not at most to save you. The purpose of what I'm doing is to glorify myself. Now ask the question again. And then you've got to say, well, wait a minute. If the thorn stays, does that bring more glory to him? Oh, I get it. <laughs> Do I like it? No. No, I don't. But then again, as he matures me, maybe I'll see something in it that I hadn't seen before. Maybe I will like it. I mean, not the pain. But if the purpose is your glory, then that changes things. So, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long and we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. What a great sentence. 
Talk about a run-on. Paul does them all the time. Will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He himself and our Father, who have loved you. And that have loved, it doesn't mean past tense. It's an aorist, but this... The tense of that participle that Paul uses is timeless. Uh, he loves you then and he loves you now. Well, this is awesome, yeah? God loves you. And if you comprehend this, you are on your way. Talk about comfort. I, mean, I was thinking as, as we were singing our songs today, especially that, that all of them were perfect, but the, the first one and the third one. We haven't sung that Maranatha song in a long time, but that, you know, he became a man. Like, how, God becoming a man is still unfathomable to me. But, you know, in that is love. God so loved the world that I'm giving, not only am I becoming a man, but I'm, I'm giving myself at the cross in the most horrible sorrow that I could possibly imagine being separated from my father and judged for the sins of the world, your sins. They're your fault. They're not mine. And yet, I'm going to put myself up there on your behalf so I can save you and glorify myself. Well, not glorify myself, glorify my Father. Uh, incredible. I will never come to a full understanding of that, not in this life. But we should still keep trying because the more we understand, the more every blip of that we understand a little bit more is going to uh, give something to our hearts that is invaluable. Invaluable. There's nothing more valuable than that. And so God loves me. Will it always feel like God loves you? Nope. I mean, if he were here fixing it, like, there's my guy. There's Jesus right there. Talk to him. I mean, honestly, isn't this the disciples during that three years? You read in the Gospels, who's the one talking to the Pharisees? Who's the one arguing with those religious leaders and making them look foolish? Who's the one doing the miracles? Now, the, the disciples were given the power of miracles, that's for sure. But who's the one truly on the battle line, armored up, and, and fighting the good fight of faith. The disciples are behind him. They're like, talk to him. And then in the night before he dies, he says, I'm leaving you, and you cannot follow. Ooh, what do you mean? You know, and, and, and they ask. And that's the, beautiful, that's the wonderful place where Peter says, I'll... I'll follow you wherever you go. <laughs> yeah, you sure you will, Peter. Sure you will. You have so much to learn. But that's it, isn't it? You know, we have so much to learn. How how is it always going to feel this way? No. No. And I'll tell you that. I mean, as God puts this together, I, I was on this, and then I, I was having my my hissy fit yesterday, and I decided to watch The Chosen. And then this this episode of the, it was the last episode of last season, third season, 
And I highly recommend it, even if you've already seen it. As I, I watched it for a second time, and I was like, uh, there's so much stuff I missed. But they opened that episode with this psalm. Psalm 77. Go there. And in the in that episode, you know, of course, in the chosen, they have to fill in stuff, or they can't make a show. You know, they have to fill stuff in. If you just based it on the gospel, you wouldn't have a show. And one of the subplots in this episode is the fact that Peter's wife has a miscarriage, and it's destroying their marriage. And here's Peter watching Jesus heal, 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 heal all these people, and. His wife has a miscarriage, and he's like, why don't you do for me? And, and I mean, I can imagine, that's a, it's a great thought that these disciples who have their own issues, I mean, we know that they did. They're people. And they're watching Jesus do thousands and thousands of miracles. You know, what about us? And it makes me think, didn't we know that Peter said at one point, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? And, and the Lord didn't say, shut up, Peter. He didn't say that. He just said, you know, there's going to be, those of you who have given up houses and families and farms for my sake, you're going to receive a hundredfold. You're going to. You're going to receive a hundredfold. What does that require? <laughs> Look at Psalm 77. For the choir director, according to Jethurun, uh, Jedithun, the Psalm of Asaph. My voice rises to God. I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God. He's, notice he repeats this. It's the exact same wording. My voice rises to God. My voice rises to God. Or I cry aloud. I cry aloud. And he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. This Hebrew word means I moan. It's a very uh, strong emotional word. When I Think about this, verse 3. When I remember God, it doesn't say when I remember Him, I jump for joy. When I remember God, I am disturbed. I moan. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint, Salah. You have held my eyelids open. This is you unable to sleep. And you want to, right? But God's holding your eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate in my heart and my spirit still ponders. And in verse 5 and 6, he's referring to the fact that I'm thinking of the past when the days were better. Look at it again. I consider the days of old, the years of long ago, and I will remember my song in the night. Right? There was a time when I was singing in the night. But right now, I moan. I'm wearied. And I can't sleep. And if you ask me even what's wrong with me, I can't even find the words. Verse 7, will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? 
Or has, or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? And that word compassion in Hebrew is comfort. Where's the comfort? Salah. As a belief, now this, we talked about the Psalms a little bit last week. There's only 150 of them. There's a whole bunch more writing. There's, we're talking 800 years of Jewish history. There's more than 150 hymns in their history. But God picked 150. And he put them in a book. And this is God's playlist. These are handpicked. And one of these handpicked songs or prayers is the fact that somebody, this guy Asaf, is like, I, I think God has just completely forgotten me and left me. And I can't sleep. I can't speak. Have you ever been so troubled like this? If you were to express it, you couldn't. You remember the days gone by when you were happy and you wondered what the heck happened to that person in that life? You thought of God and all you could do was moan? And there was no comfort coming from his name, from his word? I open up the Bible and I read it and it's doing nothing for me? Has he rejected you? Maybe he forgot. Hey, look, and I'm glad you said that, Sue, because all of us say, oh, heck no. And we do, but and, and when, if God, he says here, if you've forgotten your loving kindness, loving kindness, this Hebrew word chesed, it means his, um, his covenant love, his steadfast covenant love. In other words, I've promised to love you and to fulfill my promises to you. And it doesn't feel like it now. So on paper, we would say, absolutely not. He has not forgotten me. I know that. But what about in my depths of my soul? Has he? There are definitely going to be times like this in your Christian life. Maybe God is just so busy with so many things that even for an hour he forgot you. Maybe a day. Maybe a week. I mean, are you, are you watching this? I mean, I know I've done it. Do you see what they're doing? Have you forgotten what I'm about here? What I'm trying to do? I've been planning to do this for a while now. What, I, what are you doing? Is it that now we've got the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the Father who loves us, correct? And just maybe they've forgotten. Or, and of course we know this, is this the infinite sovereign mind of the Father and the Son doing this absolutely on purpose? We know that that is the right answer. Yes, they have. So we have to ask ourselves, why would they do such a thing? Because they do it pretty regularly. Why would they do such a thing? This gets to the question of why our God, who loves us so infinitely and purely, did not fix every problem in our life. And he's going to convince us that that's not what we want, by the way. If God loves you so infinitely, why doesn't he just fix everything? 
Well, God wants you to enjoy your spiritual life in the midst of trouble. And that's going to be, that trouble is going to be around you all the time. It's going to be in you. Your flesh is never going to get better. I mean the sin nature in you. All of us have it. It's not going to improve. It's not going to get better. We know this, but it's important to be reminded. And you must enjoy strength. Here's another great word. Optimism. Right? Optimism is a word that looks to the future and says no problem. Optimism. It's another word for hope. And that we have in our passage. For the time, I'll have you... Where are we going next? Yeah, we'll skip that too. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'll just read it for you. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and has given us eternal comfort and good hope. Is there a bad hope? Yeah. That's when you... That's pessimism. Optimism is good hope. And he says good hope in grace. You could say by grace, but in grace is fine too. And what is grace God gives? Favor. And it says he used this word, he has given us eternal comfort and good hope, given us, and so it's by grace because it's given. So how does he comfort us and give us hope? Well, first is the trouble. Where's the trouble coming from? It's within and without. <laughs> it's got you surrounded. Sin and temptation, or, you know, in this from the flesh, either you are sinning, have sinned, or you're tempted to sin. The temptation to sin is very burdensome. You find this out if you've resisted it. If you give in to temptation, you know nothing about it. But if you have resisted temptation, you know the power of sin and it's exhausting. Stay the course. Because the more you stay the course and resist, the more you're going to get endurance. And that is another aspect coming up soon uh, in chapter 3 of Second Thessalonians. And then without, this is the others. Uh, the sins of others. And now in Thessalonica, they're purposely persecuting. We don't get a lot of that here in America. I think from our point of view, we get a lot of the black hole thing where they're miserable, they're seeking uh, contentment and fulfillment and happiness in all the wrong places, and because they're miserable and unhappy, they're drawing from us. And it's impossible not to be affected by it. Hopefully, it's only affected by like maybe a slight irritation or... Uh, uh, you know, okay, i got to deal with this, and I'd rather not, but I am going to deal with this. But that runs the gamut from a little bit of effect to the fact that they actually draw the happiness and life right out of us. And then the little brat has made you a miserable person. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that because you're all thinking of her. But that's what I, I fell for it. I, I fell for it yet again. <laughs> Um, and so, let's look at Job. Job had this idea. Eventually. Go to Job 3. How dark. Job 3, please. 
how dark this is. This is where Job, after passing the, the first two tests that he faces with flying colors, as the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, correct, and then his three friends show up, and then he just jumps into despair. To his credit, Job, it took a lot to get Job at this point. But notice the darkness in this poetry. Now, if that picture up there looks familiar to you, it's in the hallway. Uh, it's a depiction of Job and his three knucklehead friends. Job 3.3, 3, let the day perish on which I was born. Now, that's despair. And the night which said a boy is conceived, may that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of mouths. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Good Lord. See that? I mean, you don't even have to look for it. Like in some poetry, you have to look for the emphasis. This is like slapping you in the face. Darkness, darkness, darkness. Go to Job 21.34. So his three friends came to comfort him, correct? They thought they knew how. Job, just admit your sin. Just admit what you did. You know, and uh, they got it wrong, as we find out at the end of the book. Uh, Job 21:34. This is the wrong kind of comfort. This is not the place where you're seeking comfort. It's very true that people can be comforting. I thank God for them. But if that is your source, it is always your source, is another person's encouragement and comfort, you are going to come up short. None of us can be that comforter for you. None of us. Don't put that burden on anybody. The Lord himself is your comforter. So Job's three friends, although they did it wrong, Job 21.34 says, How then will you vainly comfort me for your answers remain full of falsehood? They were no comfort at all. And they, they weren't. They, they only piled it on for Job. Now Job wasn't in the right either in this. I mean, everybody's wrong. But, you know, Job was more right than they were. Now go to the end, Job 42.1. After God, now what is God? When God shows up in Job 38, he says, Job, do you know what I know? Job doesn't even, God doesn't even tell Job about Satan in the beginning. He doesn't tell him that he's been tested. He doesn't tell him that Satan challenged him in heaven. He doesn't tell him that uh, Job doesn't know anything. And you would think God would say, well, Job, sorry about all this. Man, that, was, that was a tough one. I get it. But you see, Satan came to heaven and said, you only worship me because I do a lot of good stuff for you. So, you know, I had to prove that you weren't like that. So, good job. <laughs> Mostly, he doesn't do that at all. God doesn't tell him a word about it. We could imagine that it took Job to go to heaven before he figured it out and be like, that's why you did all that. Good Lord. And he'd say, exactly. 
He doesn't know anything about it. Will we? Will we know always why God didn't do this or did that? Mm-mm. It's a great lesson we get from this. Don't. When I first learned Job, I thought Job was only for the elite believer. And, and so because Job was the elite believer, I, I had nothing to do with this book until I was the elite believer, which never happened. So I might as well tear it out. Don't, don't look at Job that way. Job is not for the elite believer. Job is for everybody. There's so many great lessons in it. And this is one of them. Because you and I, we hear, but the he- and you have to, but the hearing has to become seeing. 42.1, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. There it is, first and foremost. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Speaking of himself. Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me that I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. Beautiful. Humility. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Now I see. What do I see? Satan in heaven accusing me? Nope. I see that you, Lord, can change your mighty hand when you want to and change it back, but you can do anything and will do anything to your glory. And here is where my comfort is. I see you, and by seeing you, I know what you do, I know who you are, and I know what you will do. When you will do that, that's not up to me. But you see, my comfort comes by remembering you. It's that simple. But what you have to remember is what's in his word. You may remember what's in your past, but we we read in Psalm... And go back there now. We're going to finish with Psalm 77. In Psalm 77, he said, I thought of my past. And he said, though while I'm crying on my bed... Or I can't sleep and I can't speak and has God forsaken me? Even though I know he loves me, where in the heck is he? That I do remember, and you know what I remember? When I was happy. And that ain't now. So it's not so much remembering your... Remember those glory days? (laughs) Remember? Yeah, they're gone. They're gone. They're not coming back. But what you can remember... Now, here's one of the things we're going to learn from Psalm 77. When's the last time that you and I thought, you know what, I'm going to remember the parting of the Red Sea? You're like, well, that sounds silly. That's some Old Testament, right? That's some kid's tale, you know. But that's what he's going to remember, and what is, he, you know, what is he remembering? He's remembering a million Jews walking across the Red Sea. And what does that mean? That Israel was stuck 
in a no-win situation with no hope, and yet then they find themselves walking to freedom in a way they could have never imagined. Will not God deliver in a way that you could never have imagined? And how will he do it? When will he do it? That's up to him. But will he do it? He has done it and will do it. Look, Psalm 77, 7. Just a reminder. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion or his comfort? Salah. Now, verse 10 is halfway through. And this is the hinge. That's the beautiful thing about poetry. I'm learning a bunch about it in one of my classes now, and I'm just loving it. Then I said, it is my grief. Here, this, this, now, this, the Hebrew in this line is hard. Not that I know any Hebrew yet, but um, from what I've read and studied here, that it's difficult to, dis, to unravel. But it is my grief. Could be it is my prayer. Because sometimes these Hebrew words don't, they're, they're very old and, and if they're not used very often or well known, their meanings become a little obscure. It is my grief or my prayer that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Now this phrase we know, this right hand of God, it speaks of his power. Jesus now sits at the right hand of God, at the right hand of power. And so God's right hand, in the context of this psalm, is on the person. Yeah? And he says here, it is changed. Now, the change could be for the better or for the worse. But the point is, is that it's changed. And so here's the essence-ish, because again, it's hard to discern. He says of this line, this halfway through, my grief and my prayer is that the mighty hand of God changes. He's not asking it for, to, for it to change. This is not a petition. This is, uh, Lord, your hand changes. And it's on me. And by the way, it's always on you. This, uh, Peter writes something just like this in 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And that's what this is. i got to humble myself under God's hand. What happens in my life is His call. It's not mine. And we know this. But when it comes to comfort, and that's what we're talking about today, not being the angry golfer, but being the happy golfer. You shanked it, you hooked it, you lost it, you four-putted, whatever. <laughs> You're outside in the sunshine with some friends having some fun. Nobody's good at this game. It was a joke invented by the Scottish so that they could drink a quart of scotch in two hours. It's true. It was a shot a hole. That's why there's 18 holes. Isn't that correct? Or is that a, is that a myth? Hey, they're scotch. I come from those islands. I know, I know their plight. Um, yeah, why are we stressed out about it? 
We want every shot to be right, every shot to be good. There's a lot of good golf analogies here. We want every putt to go in. We want the people to give the golf clap. You're going to shank it. Or somebody else is going to shank it. I ha- I'm, I'm laughing because I was, I was golfing with my buddy. You know Mike, Mike Pavia, tall, goofy Mike. And um, I'm golfing so terribly. It's first, and this is the first hole, first hole. We used to golf at this course. I'm so bad. So I'm so mad that I go to the second hole before they even finish the first hole. And the green, so I'm teeing off this way. The green is over here. And Mike is over, you know, he's in front of the green chipping or something. And I'm so mad that I tee up my ball and I whack it as hard as I can. And by that anger, I sliced it so bad that there's a tree here and it ricocheted off the tree. That's how bad I sliced it. I mean, I hit it that way. It ricocheted off the tree and hit him. And he showed me, it hit him in the upper thigh. It almost, well, he never had any children, so it wouldn't have mattered. But it almost made him sterile. And uh, and he showed me the bruise later, a golf-sized bruise. And he thought a bug had bit him or something because he never even saw me hit. That's anger. True story. Um, Those of us trying to live the Christian life can get stressed. And God wants us comfortable. And comfort means joy. What about him? What about her? What about it? What, yeah, exactly. And, and what about you and the Lord? That's what it is. All right, so let's pass out our elements. We're, we're going to use, stay in Psalm 77 because we're going to see the change there. And we'll celebrate our Lord's Supper.
Thank you, Kathy. Beautiful. Um, so, verse 11. Here's the change. Your hand changes. In verse 10, your hand changes. But verse 11, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Salah. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, and they were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Like we have the flood here, the splitting of the Red Sea. Your arrows flashed here and there, like lightning or thunder. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea. Your paths in the mighty waters. And your footprints may not be known. And you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This wonderful image in the last line there of there's footprints at the bottom of the Red Sea. And the psalmist has them as God's footprints, not Moses's and Israel's. But they walked across. But nobody sees that now. The question is, do you see it? Do I see it? If God would do this for his people, what is he doing for me? But at the first line here, at verse 11, I have to remember. And what is this about this, our Lord's Supper? It is about remembering. Um, this picture I took this morning off my porch facing east. You can see Larry's dad's old uh, gas station there in the distance, that little building. That's the That's Venus. So it's up there every morning. If you get up, if you're up early enough, uh, due east. Order the, now. That's the morning star. It is the brightest object in the sky, ever. And and I got a close up of it too, didn't I? Yeah, there it is. And it it is throughout scripture. It's a depiction of our Lord. The brightest object in the sky. He is the morning star. <clears throat> in the Psalms and in Job and in our passage in Second Thessalonians, there's all kinds of unprincipled and evil people out there that are drawing energy from others. They're unhappy. They're not content. And the key is Him. Because they don't know Him, they don't know life, and they draw from you. They're jealous of you. They want to hurt you. They want to shut down the truth. They hate the truth. They hate the gospel because it convicts them. They're unhappy. And we have to find a way to have comfort when they're all around us. Shouting in our ear, accusing us, or even if they're not saying anything, but we know what they're thinking. We've got to have comfort. <clears throat> so in our whole lesson today, where is comfort coming from? Remembering. The writer of Psalm 77, I remember. 
I can't sleep, but I remember. If God will part the Red Sea for them, He'll do it for me. I remember. And this gives comfort, and then it gives hope. Optimism, not pessimism. Oh, I'm in the wrong Corinthians. There we go. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If God will split the Red Sea, and then God will tear apart the body of his Son for us, what will he not do for us? In honor of our Lord, let's eat the bread. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In remembrance of our Lord and his work on the cross. Let's drink the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as the end of the Bible says, Lord, come quickly. Yeah. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for our time. Thank you for our gathering. Thank you for this supper, this table that you call us to again and again so that we never forget why we have what we have. If it weren't for him, if it weren't for God becoming a man and doing what he did on our behalf through great sorrow and the suffering that he endured, then we would have nothing, nothing. But because of him, we have everything. The morning star is our Lord, our husband, our friend, our high priest. We thank you for him. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we'll take our offering and get you up. We pray for our offering. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give. And as your believer priests, we give so that we can honor you. As all things are to your glory. We ask that you bless this offering in your name. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for our gathering and for the time we have together, for our church and just having your word and all things from you. Just wonderful. May we take the principles we've learned today and take them with us and not to leave them here, but take them in our hearts, out these doors and into our lives. 
for anyone listening who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior, I beg you to please consider the Lord Jesus Christ who is the God who became man, the only God who there is, became a man and died for the sins of the world. He was judged for your sins, judged for the sins of the whole world. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, and all of us need a Savior. He is the only one. It is not by works, all other saviors who claim to be, tell you to work for it. He is not asking you to work for it. You could never do it. He is offering you salvation as a gift. The way you accept this gift is by faith. You to believe in Him as your Lord and Savior means you accept it. That's all God is asking you to do. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior who died for you and raised again on the third day. And now sits at the right hand of God, alive, waiting for you to join Him. Believe upon Him and you will be saved. Thank you, Father, for all. In Christ's name, amen.